This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, July 19th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Most criminal cases end in plea deals, and prosecutors like it that way. But does it serve justice? Somil Trivedi is a senior staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union. The ACLU has launched a lawsuit in Maricopa County, Arizona, challenging how plea bargains happen. A prosecutor's job is to seek justice. Is that fair? That's not only fair, uh, Caleb, but it's their professional obligation under their rules of ethics that they seek justice and not simply convictions. Um, But as we know all too well, uh, that paradigm has been reversed uh, over the last 50 years um, and due almost entirely to coercive plea bargaining. Okay, so you say coercive plea bargaining. Uh, You have made the claim that plea bargaining as a as an institution, as a set of rules, is itself coercive. Uh, Let's try to dig down a little bit into exactly what makes plea bargaining coercive. If if plea bargaining did not exist, uh, cases would either get dropped or cases would go to trial. Is that right? That's right. And then we'd have a better approximation of what the state considered serious and worthy of its resources. Not all plea bargaining has to be coercive. It's not a necessary element of the regime. It's just that the way it's been practiced in all of its history has become unduly coercive. And and I'll tell you why. Um, Because we have, as a society, unfortunately, handed prosecutors ever more punitive tools to make it not a bargain at all, but rather an exercise in extraction and coercion. And by that, I mean almost ubiquitous pretrial detention, which gives people an undue incentive to take whatever deal they can to get out and get back to their family and their jobs. Mandatory minimum sentences, which ratchet up what's called the trial penalty, right? The difference between what you could get in a lenient plea deal and what you might get at trial, which simply scares people into pleading. Um, There are many other elements like this that prosecutors know scare defendants, uh, and they use them with virtual impunity. And so I would say that the third major tool is the fact that judges have pretty much let this go on without any constitutional guardrails whatsoever. And that's why we sued in Maricopa County last week uh, to finally try to put some uh, modicum of control around how prosecutors bargain with defendants. So people may be familiar with Maricopa County for uh, being the domain of perhaps one of the worst sheriffs in uh, modern American history, Joe Arpaio. And uh, so you get the sense then at least that within Maricopa County, there is a strong punitive impulse among the voting public there. So what has been the effect and what is the practice of plea bargaining in Maricopa County? Yeah, you put that extremely kindly to Maricopa. <laughs> um, they have they are the third largest uh, judicial district in the country, uh, and they have prided themselves on a punitive approach to criminal justice that has destroyed lives and communities for decades. Uh, what they are doing with respect to plea bargaining is they have a, a sort of rocket docket court system called the early disposition courts. Uh, that were intended, at least publicly, to move low-level drug offenders 
quickly through the system and into drug treatment uh, and avoid uh, the convictions that often came uh, with drug prosecutions. Your mileage may vary on on how laudable a goal that was, but at least they were trying. Um, But what the Maricopa County Attorney's Office did, what the prosecutors have done, is pervert the early disposition courts from avoiding convictions to coercing them. And the way that they do that is they tell every single defendant in that court system, if you reject the first offer that we give you, or if you assert your rights to pretty much anything, uh, a preliminary hearing where we can where we have to establish probable cause, uh, your right to trial, uh, your right to discovery, we are going to make the next plea offer, quote unquote, substantially harsher. And I say, quote unquote, because they actually write that down as a matter of policy and in big, bold capital letters at the top of every plea offer. If that's not a threat from the state to one of its citizens, I don't know what is. So what are the practical effects of that? Uh, And I assume this is not just in Maricopa County. This is just an example. This is where you have a lawsuit. uh, So that's why we're talking about it. Uh, But practically speaking, how often do you end up with people who are not guilty but see this massive differential between the likelihood of their conviction if they take it to trial uh, and the penalties that would go with it versus what they're being offered in a plea deal? That's an important question. Uh, We don't know the numbers uh, because of the very nature of this system that it coerces even innocent people into pleading guilty, but the number is too high. You know, we know just based on extrapolation of exonerations that are known, that are public, that roughly four to five percent of people behind bars at any given time are innocent. Uh, Given that we incarcerate 2.2 2.2 million people in the United States. That's uh, hundreds of thousands of people who, who might be innocent. Um, and you're right to say that what's happening in Maricopa isn't unique. It's just what's happening on steroids. It's just um, the most brazen and overt uh, manifestation of this addiction we have around the country to coercive, low-cost plea bargaining. Um, and so in some senses... Uh, this lawsuit will not be about Maricopa County denying that they're doing it. I I think it's going to be about them daring the judge to say, um, what are you going to do about it? Because if if we were to actually put guardrails around coercive plea bargaining, if we were to say, uh, if a defendant has a right to a trial or a right to a preliminary hearing, you must, must actually grant it to them, this entire house of cards would come toppling down because they would not be able to process the number of cases that they received from police, uh, and they would have to make really tough choices, uh, and they would have to do a lot of work to bring those cases to trial. And nobody in the existing system wants to see that paradigm shift, um, and that's what we're here to bring about. What's the end goal here? Is it to eliminate plea bargaining in general? Is it to merely reduce the tools that prosecutors have at their disposal? Is it to put some meat on the bones of the notion that uh, the when you go to trial, you should not face some sort of additional penalty for doing so? I think 
Perhaps all of the above. I'll say that the immediate goal of this lawsuit and our advocacy around it is not to end plea bargaining entirely. Plea bargaining can be an efficient allocation of risk. Uh, Defendants often, we need to be honest, often do seek out plea bargains on their own. Um, And so while there are some scholars, including many at Cato, who cogently argue that the right to trial is inviolate, And they have a good point because it's actually the right so nice the Constitution named it twice. It's in the text of the Constitution and in the Sixth Amendment. So it means a lot. Um, So it's there's a there's a fair argument that there can be no plea bargaining under the Constitution. I don't go as far. I just want it to be more fair. So you just named some examples of how it could be more fair. Um, Prosecutors could not retaliate against folks for asserting their rights, meaning they cannot make plea offers worse in direct response to defendants uh, asserting their rights. And then while we are making the process more fair, more due under the 14th Amendment, um, we can also work hard in the legislatures, in the courts, uh, out in the streets to cut down on these punitive tools to make pretrial detention the absolute exception to the rule instead of what happens in roughly 75% of cases, which is the the case now, um, we can eliminate mandatory minimums so that the trial penalty isn't so high. We can adopt policies in offices that says, I'm only going to charge you with the absolute minimum necessary to vindicate the the law at issue and and, uh, invoke public safety. Uh, These are the kinds of things that individually uh, may not end this system, but collectively will just even the playing field. So when we talk about plea bargaining, it's actually a fair negotiation. I like to wonder uh, about the smallest possible change you can make to have the the, the largest result. Uh, so this may be an economist's view, mm-hmm. but to what extent do prosecutors share their plea offers with judges? Uh, to what extent do they share the plea offers that they present to defendants to juries? That's a great question. So I'll take the last one first. They don't, and they're often prohibited by law to do so because if juries knew what the state actually valued a case at, they would obviously give the person that amount or less. So prosecutors want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be able to negotiate uh, down their charges so that they can get a quick, painless plea deal with none of the obstacles imposed by the Constitution. But they don't want juries to know that that's what they're doing. Uh, and so that, I think, puts the lie to the entire notion that prosecutors are really doing any of this out of a well-calibrated concern for public safety, right? Because they're willing to bargain away years and charges on a whim if it helps them get a quick conviction. Um do they share them with judges? Often they do. Often they read them into the record uh, at some point during the proceeding. Uh, and so judges know and they can take that into account during sentencing unless, and here's the big unless, there's a mandatory minimum involved. So again, prosecutors get to have their cake and eat it too. They can undercut a mandatory minimum by offering a lenient deal. Judges often cannot. So uh, mandatory minimums are meant to tie judges' hands, at least from the perspective of an unscrupulous prosecutor? Absolutely. Going forward then, um, prosecutors have enormous discretion just in the very nature of, one, deciding to bring charges. Um, 
through the through their closing argument uh, at trial. And so what prevents them or what ought to prevent them from uh, wielding that discretion uh, in a way that does not serve justice? Now, th- this is this is a fantastic question, and it really speaks to the heart of the difficulty of criminal justice reform. There is discretion baked into at every level, police, prosecutors, judges to a certain extent. Um, and drawing lines between the acceptable and unacceptable uses of discretion is difficult and people are going to disagree. Uh, and there's going to be public safety and justice hanging in the balance. And so calibrating those lines is hard. Um, but that doesn't mean we can avoid the task entirely and just give the entire endeavor over to prosecutorial or police discretion. Um, and I think the framers of the Constitution understood that, and that's why they created things like the Due Process Clause. The Due Process Clause doesn't decide in every case what amount of discretion is acceptable or not, but it requires a determination on a case-by-case basis. Um, and so that is the task at hand. And I don't want to sugarcoat. I don't want to be Pollyannish about how difficult it is. Uh I also don't want to pretend that we won't continue to have discretion in the system and that that's not a good thing. Um, until we eliminate 90% of the criminal code, there is going, there are going to technically be crimes committed all day, every day by all humans everywhere. Um, and we're going to have to trust public officials, police, prosecutors, jailers, judges to exercise their discretion to decide which are important and which aren't. But they must at least do that within the confines of the Constitution, um, and they must value they must value the cases that they're bringing rather than bring as many cases as they can, lean on as many defendants as they can, and dispose of those cases as quickly as they can, so that they are they no longer have to make those choices. That's an un- unacceptable state of affairs. That's what we're trying to fix. So, if I take everything you say. At face value, you seem to be, at least to me, making an argument against plea bargaining in general. That is, if you want prosecutors to make these kinds of valuations about cases, that necessarily ought to include, at some level, just dropping a bunch of charges. And if you don't have plea bargaining and your prosecutorial resources are limited, as they are everywhere, as they ought to be everywhere, it sounds to me like what you're saying is just get rid of it. I think we need to largely get rid of it. Here's the rub. If a defendant wants to plea bargain, we ought to let them. Meaning, I think we ought to limit the ability of prosecutors to make offers unless defendants have shown an interest in bargaining. I think that is the most fair um approach, given that the Constitution gives these rights to defendants and that we've virtually thrown them away, that is the best safeguard I can think of. Um, But at a macro level, you are right. Uh, I think prosecutors and police ought to be bringing far fewer charges than they bring now. Um, And that's both because under a constitutional system, each case should be allotted the rights and the procedure that it is owed, and therefore they prosecutors and police have to make choices. Um, and secondly, uh, 
we need to right-size the criminal justice system in general because most of what they do right now uh, isn't productive for public safety or justice. Uh, 80% of criminal dockets around the country, 80% are misdemeanors. So when we talk about, you know, the the spike in gun violence that's happened recently or the need to focus on quote unquote violent crime and these are debatable topics that would be a whole other podcast but at least if we accept some level of increase um we should be outraged that police and prosecutors are spending 80% of their time on ticky-tack misdemeanors and that's because they can largely churn these convictions out with low cost and low work and that's just easier um and so i think we can live in a more right-sized society where police and prosecutors can cut down on the nonsense cut down on the plea bargain assembly line and instead have a smaller more uh focused more professional group of people who focus on the stuff that really matters and leave the rest to non-police approaches that are proven to solve societal problems better. I think we can have our cake and eat it too that way. Somil Trivedi is a senior staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>